to a special edition of Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. In this first of two special episodes, CFRC's winter term campus news liaison Erica Singh caught up with student presenters at this year's Inquiry at Queen's annual undergraduate research conference, an event that took place on March 9th and 10th, 2023 at Stafford Library on Queen's University campus. Celebrating its 17th year, Inquiry at Queen's was back for its first in-person event since 2020, and this year's theme was Misinformation Rogue Inquiries. In today's social media news-on-demand-driven world, misinformation is rampant. The spread of incorrect and misleading information by political and non-political players alike wreaks havoc on society's ability to make informed, critical, evidence-based decisions. Misinformation and disinformation are so prevalent that the question needs to be asked whether it is in fact now the norm, while truth and facts are the rogue actors. In a world of ubiquitous and competing information, the ability to pose critical questions and forge a path to answer them has never been more important. This year, the theme for the conference and the overall goals of undergraduate research at Queen's collide as misinformation and disinformation pose a threat not only to the public, but also to researchers, educators, and students. And while not all the research that was presented at this year's conference is directly or explicitly related to the theme of misinformation, they all demonstrate the importance of inquiry-based learning in the university undergraduate experience. The 2023 Inquiry at Queen's Conference consisted of five presentation sessions, two panel sessions, a poster session, and a keynote address delivered by Dr. Amarnath Amarasingham entitled, Dangerous Conspiracies, When Do Bad Ideas Become Violent? Turning it over now to Erica Singh will be the first interview that took place with Rihanna Wood, Victor Drazilov, and Emily Ritonia, who presented a paper entitled Remembering Forgotten Stories in the Archives, A Life in Papers, Ali Vibert Douglas, a project that was supported by Ken Herndon of the Queen's University Archives. Over to Erica. Hello, my name is Erica Singh, and this is the first interview in a five-part series on the Research at Queen's Inquiry Conference. Today, I'm joined in studio by Rihanna, Victor, and Emily, who are here to present their research. Forgotten Stories in the Archives, A Life in Paper, Ali by Bert Douglas. So, hi guys, how's it going today? Good, how are you? I'm great, thank you so much. Can all of you please just introduce yourselves? Yeah, my name is uh, Emily Ratanja, and I am a fourth year um, Religious Studies major and History minor student. Uh, my name is Rihanna Wood, and I am a fourth-year history student. And my name is Victor Drazilov. I'm also a fourth-year history major, so we are all graduating. Yeah, that sounds so exciting. Are you guys excited to graduate? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, we have like a week and a half left, so uh, this is a great way to close it out. <laughs> so how did you all meet? Uh, we actually met in the History 502 internship, which uh, is through the History Department, mm -hmm. and uh, that was at the Queen's Archives um, doing a research project on Allie Viper Douglas. And can you please just do a brief introduction of your research? All right, so yeah, um, as part of this course, we were tasked with uh, digitizing and categorizing the papers um, and archival material of Ali Vibert Douglas. Uh, so we were going through her primary sources, writing scope and content for them for future researchers to use and digitizing them so that they were accessible through the Queen's Archives website. Mm -hmm. And who was Dr. Ali Vibert Douglas? 
yeah, so um, Ali Viper Douglas was a Queen's professor of astronomy and astrophysics. Um, she was also the Dean of Women, which was a role that Queen's had until about, I guess, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, she was, so she was Dean of Women for about 20 years. And uh, she was, like I said, an astrophysicist. She was a uh, contemporary of people like Einstein and um, Eddington and Bertrand Russell. Um, so, you know, friends with a lot of big names. Yep, that sounds so cool. How do you guys come across her and how did you decide on this topic? So we were given this topic actually by the Queen's archives. So we didn't come up with it ourselves. Um, it was supposed to be a part of a bigger project looking at women in STEM throughout history, but unfortunately the archives weren't, wasn't able to get the funding for that. So they wanted to just focus in specifically on um, Dr. Douglas for us. Mm -hmm. And how did all of you approach the challenge of going through all of these fragmented archival records? Mm -hmm. So the fonds of Dr. Douglas are actually separated into two different sections. They are, they're the ones that were donated by herself at the end of her career. And those are mostly her academic correspondence, um, stuff that really she didn't need anymore and decided it was time to donate. And then uh, in the Douglas family fonds, there is um, a collection of her work as well that's a bit more personal because it was donated by her family after her death. And that only really gives us um, a small perspective of her uh, because it's mostly incoming correspondence. We don't really get to see what she wrote going out. Um, there was also the added challenge because obviously there's three of us. So we split the papers up between the three of us. So not a single one of us really got the full story. So it was a lot of collaboration and sharing what we had learned between uh, the group of us. Right, and you research her life for an entire semester, four months? Uh, yes, that's right, yes. Yeah, and what is some of the most interesting or surprising discoveries you made about Dr. Douglas? There are a lot, um, which is why we gave a 10-minute talk about it, presenting the research, and we still couldn't, um, we couldn't even bring up some of the really interesting um, things. So there were a number of really interesting discoveries. She's a really interesting person. Um, she was the first female astrophysicist in Canada that alone we didn't know, yet she was working at Queen's for decades and we felt like that was kind of a cool thing that Queen's should be maybe talking about a little bit more um, that they hired her. But um, learning really all kinds of stuff about her personal life, about her academic life, the fact that she met Einstein and corresponded with him and was sending letters back and forth with Bertrand Russell, Arthur Eddington was her um, supervisor, which we talked about earlier, she was just so um, involved with some of these really, really big names in astronomy. Um, and one thing that we found really interesting to work through was why she wasn't nearly as well known as they were and where her career took her um, and why. Right. And in addition to library archives, I um, understand you talked to some of Dr. Douglas's living relatives. Yes, so that was really cool. So part of our, um, you know, work in the internship was that we posted tweets on the Queen's Archives Twitter account, you know, talking about what, what we learned and what we had discovered. And um, some of her living relatives, I guess, followed the account and reached out to us saying uh, that they were really happy that we were working with her material. And um, they actually referred us to a book that they had been interviewed for a couple, I guess, last year. Um, and so, you know, we bought it and we read it and, um, it was fascinating that we got to, 
email back and forth with him. I, yeah, I think the coolest part about hearing from them was that all of a sudden it became very real that we were dealing with a real person. Because obviously when you're looking at words on a pa- piece of paper, uh, it can feel like very almost disassociated from the real person. And so actually hearing from her living relatives, hearing how much it meant to them, the fact that we were still discussing her, still trying to rediscover her and keep her story alive, it just made the whole process a lot more like real to us. Right. And one of the main themes of your research is the gender bias in academia. Um, Do you just mind talking a bit about how Dr. Douglas dealt with this in her time? So as the first female astrophysicist, she was breaking into a very male-dominated field. Um, It was actually very difficult for her just even going through her academics and trying to get to the point where she could have a PhD. Um, It was a long process with McGill of getting accepted into that. Um, When she was actually in her career, uh, she really, I think, wanted to be what the male professionals were doing, which was, you know, being a professor, teaching, doing your own research. But unfortunately, as a woman, she just wasn't granted that same opportunity. So accepting the position of Dean at Women Here was really her only opportunity to enter the field of academia and her only way that she, like, made a stipulation, I will do this role as long as you make me professor of astronomy here at Queen's. Um, And then throughout her correspondence, you can see that based on her position and her accomplishments, a lot of people just assumed that she was a male, uh, especially because a lot of the times she would go by AVD or A. Vibert Douglas. So, you know, kind of taking away her her feminine name. And we found a couple of letters uh, where it was addressed to a Mr. Vibert Douglas, assuming that that's that she was a male. Um, it was really interesting, though, that she didn't correct people when she responded to them. She like she got an e- uh, one letter from this Sanskrit institute um, in India asking for her to contribute to a journal. And in her response back, she just said that she wasn't doing any current research, so she had nothing to contribute, but she didn't bother correcting them that she was a female. Makes me wonder how often she got it and like if she just didn't see it was like necessary was pointless to her to constantly be in that battle of correcting them i will say that she was definitely still proud of like being a woman she was i believe the president of the uh international foundation of federation of university women um and she was really promoting uh women in academia and um she we found a bunch of like letters and quotes from her saying that um, she thinks that women are really disvalued in uh, academia and that, you know, she was always trying throughout her career to uh, push them up. Yeah, actually, one of the um, really interesting, again, one of the really interesting stories that we couldn't get too much chance to talk about before um, is that one of her former students named their daughter after her and specifically wrote in the letter, I'm naming my daughter after you because I, I think you are such a good example to young women. And I want my daughter to grow up, um, you know, strong and independent the way that you did. Yep, that's amazing, really. Um, so in your opinion, why is it important to publicly promote the life and works of historical figures such as Dr. Ali Viber Douglas through digitization and conferences such as this one? I mean, archives in general are really important for the preservation of uh, history and of historical figures, but often when things are in the archive, it's hard to take them back out unless you already know that they're in there. So um, projects like this really can help uh, 
you know, promote these people who may have been lost to the archives and um, people get to rediscover these people's lives all over again. Um, and maybe they have more of an impact today than they did in their lifetime. Um, and you get to see really the importance of their work in another time. Yeah, there's also the real impact, like Emily was talking about earlier with the living relatives um, uh, that we emailed with. Because by digitizing the records, we make them accessible for everybody, um, which includes her family. And so she may have family members scattered around the globe who can't really come to Kingston just to check out her archives. But if we digitize it, then they can learn all these things about their great aunt that they didn't know um, before and can see her handwriting and all sorts of things like that. Um, and not just her own family, but everybody else as well. So anybody who finds her story really interesting um, or inspirational can um, get a, a first-hand look at it um, themselves. And as history students, I think uh, we all agree that that's really important and really valuable to, to get that first-hand look um, and see something directly for yourself. Right. Well, talk to me a bit about the inquiry at Queen's Undergraduate Research Conference. While we were talking about this earlier, you guys mentioned a funny story about how you didn't even know you were competing. Can you talk a bit about your experience? Yeah, so we um, heard about the conference from our internship supervisor, Heather Holm. And uh, basically at the end of the four months, she came to us and just said that this is something that we could should consider doing uh, just based on all the work that we had did and because we had collaborated together so much and really built an understanding of her together. So we left it at that and then came back together this semester and was like, okay, I guess we're actually going to do this. So put together everything that we had learned um, into our presentation. Uh, we were really excited just to get the chance to talk to about her and, you know, kind of brag a little bit. And we really feel like we got to almost know her on a personal level. So we just really wanted the opportunity to share that with other people. Um, and so the conference was a really cool way to do that. It's a really cool way to get some experience and some feedback from, you know, actual graduates and uh, librarians. Um, and yeah, we didn't know that we were going to be graded for it. So this was a surprise when we got the email. But uh, yeah, really excited about it. <laughs> We spent the whole conference uh, looking at people writing stuff down on little sheets and going, I wonder what they're doing that for. <laughs> yeah, well, we finally find out three weeks um, three weeks later, which is great. And I'm, now I'm very happy that they were there, that they were writing things down, and that they wrote down what they wrote down about us. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll mention about the conference is I can't think of uh, really any other undergrad history, sorry, not history, but undergraduate research conferences. I can't think of any other opportunity that I would have been given over the last four years um, to be able to talk about my research, not my research, but talk about the things that I had learned in classes and, and actually present that in front of graduate students, in front of um, staff and faculty and whoever else wants to come. I think it's really awesome that Queens gives an opportunity to their undergrads to do that. Right. Well. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today. Is there any final remarks you'd want to add? I think the only thing I want to add, um, just obviously we did so much focus of um, Ellie Viber Douglas on her academic life because that was such an important part. But I think something that really surprised us was how personal looking through someone's archival material can be and how much we really feel like we got to know her. Um, we have 
like one funny story that we just absolutely love about her. She was a really big traveler. She really went everywhere in the world, um, anywhere you can think of. And she was in Germany uh, during the Cold War for a conference. And she decided one day uh, that she was going to just cross Checkpoint Charlie by herself and go explore East Berlin. And when she came back, she told her co-travelers this and they were shocked that she, as a woman, had done that solo by herself. Uh, But that was just the type of woman that she was. And uh, we just loved getting to know her not only as an academic, as she's mostly remembered, but also just as a very quirky and unique and fun person. She was also in her 70s at the time so it's not like you know she, she was uh, she was getting up there but um yeah she was she you can really find out a lot about people's personalities in that way and uh uh yeah i would just add that um archives are a great resource and we digitize these things for a reason so um if you are interested in anything that um the three of us have been talking about you can pop onto the Queen's Archives website and find her records, find the letters that she exchanged with Einstein. He was pretty funny. He made a couple jokes in those letters that we had a very good time reading. Um, So yeah, read the archives if you can. And if you hear interesting stories like this outside of archives, anything in your life, just chase those stories because like Emily was saying, it had a big personal impact on us to learn about her for four months. Mm-hmm. And you can access these archives on the library website? Yeah, so it's on the Queen's Archives website. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the uh, digital assets, uh, and it'll be under the uh, Allie Vibert Douglas uh, section. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed learning about Dr. Douglas and learning about all of you. Once again, that was Rihanna, Victor, and Emily joining me here today in studio. We hope you enjoyed Erica's conversation with the Remembering Forgotten Stories in the Archives of Life and Papers presenters. Coming up next, we're delighted to share Erica Singh's interview with Pungavi Lingan, whose paper analyzing the cultural shift in South India, the legacy of the East India Company, was presented at Inquiry at Queen's with faculty support from Dr. Robert Highland at Bader College. Hello and welcome to Campus Corner. My name is Erica Singh, and today I'm joined in studio by Pungavi. Hi, Pungavi. How's it going? Hi, it's going good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. So do you just mind introducing yourself? Well, my name is Pungavi, and I am a third year student doing a joint honors in classical studies and political studies. And for the Inquiry at Queen's conference, I did a project called Analyzing the Cultural Shift in Southern India, the Legacy of the East India Company. And I did this project originally in my first year in Bader College on a project dedicated to Orientalism and colonization and the lasting impacts. Okay, that's very interesting. Can you please talk a bit more about your project and give us a brief overview? So for my project, I focus on three aspects of Southern India culture that have been changed as a result of colonization and the East India Company. So I start off talking about the attitude towards sex and sexuality as prior to colonization, India was very sex positive. I mean, they wrote the Kama Sutra, so I mean, pretty open. And the second topic I talked about was clothing. As before colonization, the clothing was a lot more liberal, as they didn't wear blouses under the saris, and it was more apt for the hot weather. 
but then modesty was introduced by colonization and the British. And finally, I talk about the beauty standard in southern India before and after colonization, which is a hot topic in many communities in India now, as before colonization, many southern texts describe beauty as a medium to tan skin tone, the color of a young mango leaf, which is pretty brown. Meanwhile, today, if you look at southern India cinema and the standards that exist, you basically have to look like a European to be considered beautiful. That's why companies like Fair and Lovely are so successful there. Mm -hmm. So those are the three points I talk about in my project. Yes. And in the Western world, the idea of the colonization of India isn't very, um, what's the word, widespread or um, not many people know about it. So do you mind just giving a brief history of the timeline? So during the colonial period, it started with the Portuguese and the French and other European countries coming in. And it started as just trade relations where they would trade with India while subtly introducing Christianity and European ideals. But then the British came in and they took things to a much stronger approach where they started introducing different standards because they had this Orientalist view that anyone that was different from them was inferior and wrong. At the time, they believed that their way of life was the only way of life that was right as they were following God's chosen path. So since India was almost opposite to them, they tried changing every aspect of Indian culture in a way to save them. So it's almost similar to how the British treated the indigenous people here in Canada, where they thought they were living all wrong, so they tried to change it. And then with independence, a lot of these standards still exist, even though it wasn't that long ago that the British came but that's how well their changing of the laws, changing of society worked. Mm -hmm. And you discussed three facets to your research. Um, the first one being um, sex positivity, mm -hmm. then fashion and beauty standards. Um, let's go through those one by one. Can you please talk to me a bit about your research about sex positivity in South Asia? So for sex, sex positivity in South Asia, there's actually three aspects that I focus on. For starters, obviously the Kama Sutra. What most people don't know is that there are specific chapters, I believe it's chapter eight and nine, that talk about homosexual sexual acts. So man and man, woman and woman, and it wasn't written any differently than the other chapters. So it kind of shows how homosexual acts were considered normal. It wasn't anything different or something surprising which is quite different from how it is today. Mm -hmm. And then my second point talks about the Aravan cult in Tamil Nadu, which is basically a transgender cult dedicated to a transgender form of the god Vishnu. Mm -hmm. The story goes in the Mahabharatam, the Pandavas needed a human sacrifice, and these are the good guys side with the god. So they needed a human sacrifice and they finally found someone willing but this person had a wish before he died, that he should be married and spend the night with a woman. Now, obviously, no one wanted to marry him only to become a widow the next day. So the god Vishnu himself turned into his female form, Mohani, and married Aravan and slept with him. And then the next morning, Aravan went to be sacrificed. 
So every year, this Aravan cult in Tamil Nadu, they celebrate this activity by acting out the story. And it's basically done by a lot of transgender people in Tamil Nadu and widely accepted, which shows how transgender people weren't always new and they weren't always considered an other. They were part of Hinduism. They were part of our ancient stories. But obviously, with colonization, it became sort of an other, as if it's unnatural, even though we've always been talking about it. Mm -hmm. And can you give any like specific research examples you came across about the transition from um, transgenderism and homosexuality being um, something that's widely accepted to something that's shunned and shut away? One key example is how homosexual marriages are still illegal in India, and even homosexual relations was only made legal just a few years ago, within the last decade. And even then, when all these companies and the country itself was promoting homosexual relations, there was a lot of backlash towards it, saying it's against Hinduism, it's against Indian nature, which is quite ironic. And even in Canada, a few years ago, there was this Tamil priest who officiated a Hindu wedding between two lesbian women, and he was sent death threats for doing so. And this is in Canada, in Toronto, where you'd think people would be a little bit more liberal. So that's just a key example of how it still exists today, even though our ancient texts and even pre-colonial texts show that we were much different before. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you have any specific examples of how, um, like for this example, let's use the British colonizers, how this was looked at back in England, back in the UK, and how those like translated to India? So in the UK, in Britain, obviously homosexuality was a sin under the Bible. So because of that, they saw their Bible as the only thing that was true. Mm -hmm. They didn't believe in other religions. They thought theirs was the only true God, and thus, if you weren't following that, you were going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. So because of that, when they came to India and saw all these liberal attitudes, they had the white savior complex, where we needed to save them almost. So that's how they viewed it. We need to save these people from hell, so let's change their attitudes and make them just like us, which was very modest according to their Victorian age ideals. Mm -hmm. Right. And let's move over to the next facet, which was fashion. Um, Fashion is something I'm very personally interested in. And um, for those who don't know, a sari is a traditional South Indian um, attire, which is basically made of seven yards of fabric. And it's draped in specific ways, depending on the region you're from. Um, One thing, this past week, there was a new cultural center opening in India where many Western celebrities, such as Zendaya, Gigi Hadid, they all showed up wearing saris, if any of you are looking for examples. But talk to me a bit about how the modesty was forced upon women who wore saris. So before the EIC, or the East India Company, the saris were just the fabric and nothing more. You didn't have this underskirt or a blouse that people usually wear today, which meant a lot of the body was left pretty open since you can't cover much with just one yard of fabric. There was no extra pieces. And even if you look at ancient sculptures, you can see that they just have their bare necessities covered, just their breast and their private parts. But even then, it's very open and very liberal. 
Meanwhile, with the with colonization, the British started implementing rules for British-run clubs that forced women to start wearing blouses and start covering up. For example, the first person who popularized a blouse in southern India, she was banned entry from a club run by the British Raj because she was showing her shoulders, because she didn't have a blouse on. So by promoting that idea that you cannot come into the British Raj areas, you in these high-class areas without covering up, it pushed a notion that unless you're covered up, you're less, you're inferior, and you're similar to the lower class, mm -hmm. which kind of is what pushed the idea that modesty is superior. You have to wear modesty to be a respectable person. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this translates a lot to today as well, I feel. Um, one example, which I recall, is the underskirt, which goes under sari. Um, it's called, it's basically a petticoat, but it's pronounced like a petticoat or something. And that's like shows the influence even today, how people who don't even speak English, they know these words because they, they were forced upon them. Mm-hmm. Definitely. The fact that both of these words are English and uh -huh. you can't find that in the languages in India shows a lot. Right. Okay. Um, before we move on to beauty standards, talk to me a bit about your research process, how you went about finding material for your paper. So it was definitely difficult finding materials for my paper, especially mm -hmm. because I focused on southern India. I feel like most research when it comes to India focuses more on the northern part or the majority. And even if they don't focus on a specific area, it tends to be very generalized. Meanwhile, India is full of so many different cultures, so many different religions, languages. Each area has its own culture, its own history. Especially since before colonization, there were many different kingdoms in the Indian subcontinent. It was only with colonization that they all got forced under one label. Mm -hmm. So when I was trying to find research, it was hard because most sources generalized India as a whole. So finding stuff specific to South India was difficult and I had to look through a lot of ancient and pre-colonial texts that I had to translate myself. Mm -hmm. And it was only a few actually that I found. Most of it was me pulling from statues and artifacts that were found as well as one or two research papers and the most was the literary text found that, again, I had to translate. Mm -hmm. So it was a very time-consuming process, but I hope that this is the first stepping stone in towards searching more about the different areas of India rather than just generalizing. We don't generalize when it talks about Europe or the research towards them. You talk about Ireland, Scotland, Britain. You have research specific for each area, but for India, it's all generalized. So I hope this is the first stepping stone towards getting more research specific to each culture. Mm -hmm. Beside the impact of this being a stepping stone about having more generalized research, no, sorry, having more specific research about each area, what impact do you wish your research has? The big impact is towards our recent goal of decolonizing our world. Mm -hmm. If you look at modern Indian societies, Many of them are still judgmental on you have to be modest, you have to act a certain way, dress a certain way, or else you are not from a respectable family. What will other people think of you? Those are pretty common in many 
Indian and Asian families to hear. So this is a process of decolonizing that mindset so that future generations don't feel like they have to change who they are to fit in. Like me, for example, I am not fair. I am medium if best. And growing up, I heard a lot that you should be fairer. You shouldn't spend too much time in the sun, especially since my sister is a lot fairer than me. And same with clothing. If I show a little bit of skin, well, look at that. That's not right. Just make sure you don't dress like this around your family or around your community, because what will they think? And that's just my experience. So growing up, that led to a lot of insecurities and inferiority complexes. So my research, I hope to decolonize that mindset. So young girls and boys, they don't feel like they have to change. They should feel confident and beautiful just the way they are, regardless of what society tells them. Yeah, that's a very important message to spread. Um, So just segueing off of that, let's move on to your third facet, which was beauty standards. Talk to me a bit about modern beauty standards and how they translated to the pre-colonization beauty standards. So a key example of the modern beauty standard in South India is the fact that there was a British actress coming into Tamil cinema and acting as a South Indian character. Mm-hmm. And she looks fully British, but because of the way they dressed her up, because of the way they had people dub over her, a lot of people believe she was at least half or if she was Anglo-Indian, which leads to beauty standard that if she can look like that with Eurocentric features, why can't I? So that was a key example of modern beauty standards where you need that fair skin, you need those big eyes, you need high cheekbones, and even just you need a thin body. So many Eurocentric features are valued. If you look at cinema in general in India, you can see that the top actresses often look very similar, as in they all have fair skin tones, medium if you're lucky, and they're all really thin. And that's just one way on how right now India perpetrates the idea that this is what beauty looks like. And if you don't look like that, you, you're not beautiful. You can't be in these movies. You can't be those characters. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the pre-colonial nature, looking at ancient texts and pre-colonial texts, you see that they value a lot different things. For example, again, a medium, glistening, dark skin tone. The color of a young mango leaf is something that really stood out to me in one of these ancient texts because that is a medium skin tone that is pretty achievable for the average South Indian. Mm -hmm. How do we go from that to British actresses and their skin tone in Tamil cinema, for example? And even for the body image, before colonization, uh, hips, wide hips were very valued, which meant obviously your top half had to be a little bit wide too. And because the features that were valued were related to fertility and good health. Meanwhile, today, you need to be thin. You still have to have those curves, but you have to be thin. And again, just bringing in my personal examples as the reasoning why I took this project on, I would consider myself average, maybe chubby, but I've been told my whole life, even when I was skinnier, that I should be stick thin because that's what the actresses on TV looked like. That's what was valued in my community. 
So again, my goal is to make sure that the future generations don't grow up with these insecurities. Mm -hmm. They're not told this growing up. It's to show that it was all colonization that brought these new mindsets. And when you look at pre-colonization, everyone is beautiful. Everyone fits in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one like example which sticks out to me is the Hindu god Krishna or like other iterations such as mm -hmm. Vishnu. Um, they're painted blue in many graphics when if you look at actual like stories and texts, they're described as having a very dark skin tone. Mm -hmm. And instead of portraying a god as being dark skinned, they portrayed him as being blue. Did you come across this in your research at all or... I did, however, I didn't focus on it because mm -hmm. I felt like that was also a little bit generalizing all of India, mm -hmm. and I wanted to focus specifically on the South, yeah. but that is also a very key big point that I came across. Even when you look at Hindu goddesses, they're not stick thin, they look average, but still, the modern beauty standard, you gotta be thin. And even all those artifacts you find, all those paintings, they are average body scale, average skin tone. Mm -hmm. But after colonization, it all shifted so quickly and so drastically. Right. And going through your research, um, did you find anything very unexpected, something that stuck out to you? One point that stuck out to me was the temple dancers or the Devadasi in Tamil Nadu. We were all told that growing up that they were prostitutes, which is why the art form was banned by the British. However, looking more into it, these women weren't even allowed to have sexual acts. They were dedicated to the temple, similar to Roman Vestals. Mm -hmm. They were similar to female priests. Yet the British came in and they didn't care to look deeper into the meaning behind these women. And they generalized them with dancers outside the temple and figured, dancing this openly of any kind should be banned because it's provocative and sexual. And because of that, when you look at modern dance forms like Bharatanatyam, it's very modest, where even famous dancers like Rukmini Vijayakumar in South India, a lot of dance teachers even here in Canada aren't a big fan of her because she dresses not as modest as they would like. Mm -hmm. And she dances in clothing that will be considered not modest, even though sometimes it's literally just showing an inch of her stomach. Mm -hmm. And that's how those ideals continue to be perpetrated. And as a Bharatanatyam dancer myself, that really surprised me that the reason I'm not allowed to sway my hips or wear more, more, more liberal clothing when dancing is because of that original ban on temple dancers who are a lot more free-flowing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, so talk to me a bit about your experience with the research conference. How do you go about compiling? Because this was an old paper that you pulled material from. How do you go about compiling your information, the process of presenting and competing? So I heard about this conference from one of my professors, actually. And it was very close to the deadline. Mm -hmm. So it was a very quick rush to create the abstract and update my paper. One thing that was difficult or tedious, I would say, was updating my old paper. Because in that paper, I did not go into great detail on the different forms of pre-colonial South India. 
and I myself tended to generalize India a lot. Mm -hmm. So in those few days, I had to go find more research to specifically tailor it to southern India. And then I had to create an abstract, mm -hmm. which basically details all my research into one quick summary and create some slides. And it was a very interesting and engaging to go visit the conference and see everyone else presenting their presentations as well, because you can see how diverse Queens is becoming. In my section in particular, we had presentations on the indigenous and their health in Toronto, on different classical works such as Shakespeare and Othello, and even one presentation on No Nut November. So it was very interesting to see all those different types of research. And while mine was a bit different, I feel like we were all very different in our presentations. So I've enjoyed the process. Is this a topic you're going to continue with in the future? Something that you see yourself revisiting and reworking on? I hope to continue this in the future, which is why I'm doing the joint honors in classical studies and political studies. My future research interests in particular are taking those ancient artifacts and ancient knowledge and seeing how that translates to today with all the changes it's been through. So taking an anthropology approach. Mm -hmm. So I do hope to take this in the future. Right. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Um, once again, that was Pungavi joining me today in studio to talk about her research. We hope you've enjoyed our inquiry at Queen's conversation so far. Coming up next, our host, Erica Singh, also sat down with Fleur Nasselder, Adriana Armstrong, Elissa Jovanangeli, Yanjin Shu, and Hannah Burroughs to discuss their inquiry at Queen's presentation addressing financial barriers to higher education and an innovative, equitable, and accessible module-based program that helps connect students with untapped surpluses of available scholarship money to fund their education. So, uh, hi guys, how's it going? Good. How are you? Great. Now, do you mind? Do you all just mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Flo Nusselder. I use she/her pronouns. I'm a fourth-year psychology major and sociology minor, and I'm returning for a fifth year next year. Hi. My name is Adriana Armstrong. I also use she/her pronouns. I'm a fourth-year psych major here at Queens. I'll be graduating this year. However, I'm in the Con Ed program, so I'll be returning next year for my Bachelor of Education year. Hey everyone, my name is Yanxin Xu. I'm a use her pronouns. I'm a fourth year psychology student. Next year I'll be returning for fifth year in psychology. Hi, my name is Alyssa Jovanangeli. I use she her pronouns and I'm a fourth year psychology major and film minor. And I'll be pursuing my master's of cognitive psychology at McMaster next year. Hi, my name's Hannah Burrows. I also use she, her pronouns. I'm graduating the psychology program this year, and I'll be returning to Queens to do my master's in cognitive neuroscience next year. Sounds great. So all of these lovely ladies are here today to talk about their project, Addressing Financial Barriers to Higher Education. Can one of you please just give me a brief introduction of the project? Sure. Um, so we started the project as a uh, group project and um, really it was rooted in the statistics that we found that showed that financial barriers are a prominent deterrent to higher education. Um, even though 
varied sources have said that any year there's between 10 million and 100 million dollars in scholarship money left over. Um, so to address this barrier, we've decided to v develop an accessible and evidence-based module program that helps reroute these uh, this financial surplus to students every year. Um, and our goal is to be able to introduce this to high school students so that they have the resources and tools they need so that they can um, apply to these scholarships and hopefully we can increase attendance to post-secondary education because we also know that there is so much research supporting um, the benefits of a post-secondary education in various domains. Yes, and do you mind just explaining a bit about how the program runs and what the modules are? Yeah, so we have five different modules that we're working on, and basically it's a scaffolded approach to helping students work through the process of applying to scholarships, um, and even just approaching the idea of post-secondary in general. So there's expense calculations, uh, modules that show them like how to find scholarships. Uh, we also work a lot on writing skills, as that's such a crucial part of a scholarship application. So we develop those skills and help them basically through every aspect of a applying to scholarships and preparing for post-secondary in general. Um, that way it is more attainable for them and hopefully through this program they will be able to receive some scholarship funding and help fund their post-secondary education. Mm -hmm. Right, and you explained this a bit already in the first question, but what inspired you to make this? So we all took the course Psych 400 uh, last semester. It's teaching and learning in psychology with Dr. Megan Norris. And we were put together uh, in, for a group project to design something um, like an intervention project uh, to tackle a problem in education. So we all had the kind of collective experience of applying to scholarships before university and not really knowing what was out there or how to go about applying and creating these applications. So we knew we wanted to tackle that as well as financial illiteracy. Uh, so we kind of came together and thought we would make a project designed for high school students, uh, for the people um, who had were similar experiences to us. So we decided to design a program tailored for high school students uh, who are in situations like we were um, all those years ago to help them kind of navigate the scholarship uh, process and the application process as well. And what do you think the impact of this program would be? What are some key skills you want to see developed in these high school students? In a lot of our research, there's so much inequity that happens um, for students that are able to apply and those that can't. So one of our biggest impacts that we really hope to foster with this program is um, reducing the inequity of the amount of students that are able to apply to scholarships. It's a scaffolded approach, as Adriana said, but the scaffolding is really looking at a step-by-step -step process so students can really deter any sort of feelings that they don't feel that they're adequate for these scholarships, that they may not have proper representation for specific scholarships. So we really try and make it a module-based program where each of these students can feel at the end of it that no matter what they choose to apply to, whether it's a short 200-word um, blurb or if it's a long essay, that they have these skills. Um, these skills specifically are looking at interview skills, resume skills, any sort of job application, anything that they can apply and really speak to themselves and understand their value. So just off to the side, is this something you're all pursuing further and trying to get this implemented? So yes, we do have we do have the hope to implement it and make it 
available to more students, given that we, most, some of us as a graduate and we have, all have different plans. We actually devoted our efforts to uh, coordinate online and work through the process. Our hope is that it could be published somewhere, be open access to all the students. So even though we're graduating and going to different passes, we hope that this could serve a tie that as a tie to connect us together and connect us back to Queens where it's originated. Yeah, so talk to me a bit about the process of creating these modules. What are some of the modules and how do you go about making the content? So the modules were designed using H5P, which Dr. Megan Norris helped us to establish and help direct us to figuring out how to do that. Um, and it'll be an interactive, and the modules are an interactive workbook that we can embed directly into those D2L equivalents. Um, and within those modules, uh, the di design of the modules is really rooted in psychological research. So um, based on principles of scaffolding, we provide breakdowns of all of the key concepts. For example, um, for resume building, we discuss the key elements of a resume, the what you need to include on your resume. Um, so for example, uh, the education, what you need to include within your education, your work experience, what you need to include there, how to describe your skills and experiences. And then we've also included sample resumes and a video that breaks down each aspect of the resume. Um, and all of these relate to broader psychological evidence-based principles as well, um, such as cognitive fluency and um, managing students' cognitive load so they don't feel as overwhelmed. And through doing these things, we can help foster their self-efficacy um, so that they feel more comfortable and confident and, as Hannah mentioned, um, able to apply to these scholarships. And through the, this approach, we're hoping to reduce that gap to barriers in higher education. Um, and all of these modules follow these same principles. And at the end of each module, we've also included a learning consolidation activity to help further establish this knowledge and so that they can apply it in future um, endeavors as well. I want to talk about some of the research you put into this. What groups did you reach out for to get material for your modules? So a big bulk of this project was actually just us in our course. So when we were developing it, this was basically a big project that was like our final exam, for example. Mm -hmm. um, when we finished the course, we were able to um, enlist into the DDQIC's Q-Year Venture Program, which has been really um, cool for us to basically, it's way more entrepreneurship based. So a lot of us don't really have a commerce background. We don't really know how to connect in specific ways for this. Um, so we w we've been looking at avenues of looking at superintendents, getting in touch with libraries, um, potentially guidance offices and people that can implement this. We don't really want to add to the load of teachers um, because that really is difficult for them to facilitate something like this. Um, we also are looking at uh, collaborating with career services, specifically for their resumes um, and potentially the career like interview um, mm -hmm. workshop skills. All right, so now I just want to pivot a bit and talk about your experience with the conference. Um, so tell me, how was the process going in, presenting, meeting all the other teams? Yeah, for sure. So we were super honored to be admitted into the conference and able to share our research. Um, we uh, did our presentation and we also got to listen to a lot of other uh, super cool research um, ideas and uh, concepts uh, presented by other students. So overall, it was just a really great experience at Inquiry at Queens. Uh, we were very honored to be able to present there and uh, to meet all the people that we did through the conference. 
Yeah, so talk to me a bit about any future plans you have, about where you want this to go, and kind of what impact you want to create with your program. Yeah, so for the impact we want to have, it's really important to us um, that we kind of help break down this barrier for students. We've all been in the position before of applying to post-secondary um, education programs and whatnot and being like overwhelmed by seeing like the costs associated with that. And we know for some students in particular, um, it really is a barrier. Due to all the benefits of attaining a post-secondary education, we really don't want the financial burden to discourage students from applying. So we really hope to um, give them all the resources that they need so that they can apply for scholarships, receive some funding, and make their post-secondary dreams come true and pursue whatever career paths they would like. Yeah, that's a great point. I think we really want to echo the impact is something that students really don't need to pay for. I think the more... Um, Basically, the more companies that are created that really follow this idea where examples are like Chegg and Grant Me, where students like you're really paying for success in education. And I think that can really deter students that don't have that disposable income to really um, pay to then apply to scholarships. So we really want to just make students feel like at the end of the day, no matter what the amount of money that they're able to get, for example, like some students may get a lot more based on their personal experiences, but actually feeling that they can apply to a scholarship is something that we really want to make sure students feel like they can actually do through this program. Mm -hmm, of course. Yeah. Um, also for um, our future directions, we want to keep working on this program. Obviously, we want to implement it into high schools. We're currently writing the FCAC student barriers um, competition. We are aiming to apply to that and the winner of that actually gets published on Canada.ca. So this would be a really great opportunity. We think we have a really good shoe in for this. Um, we also are looking to add in uh, other um, barriers that have caused other problems within education that we want to try and implement. So we're looking at um, increasing sex uh, education and sex awareness um, in our modules and potentially um, making another module-based program following that as well. Mm, of course. Yep, so before we say goodbye today, thank you so much all for coming in and talking to me. This was of I've really proud of your project and proud of what you are all able to accomplish. Um, any final remarks you want to share? First, we want to give an extra special thank you to Dr. Megan Norris from the psychology department for all her support and guidance throughout this process. She has been invaluable in helping us connect with different resources, including the DDQIC, through which we are gaining some extra education on how to continue on with this process um, but we would really just like to thank Dr. Megan Norris for all of her help she has been phenomenal well thank you all once again for coming in and talking to me today thank you so much for having us this was really fun thanks so much for tuning in we hope you've enjoyed these conversations so far tune in next week for part two of erica singh's conversations with inquiry at queen's presenters uh, for that conference that happened in march hope you have a great day stay tuned for more great programming right here on cfrc mm -hmm.